welcome um, to, to Lunch Money. My name is Nick Samios. I am the fund manager here at Hermes Capital and your Lunch Money host. And Lunch Money is, of course, your online and social media home for workouts, uh, capital raising and special situations professionals. Um, it has been an interesting past six months if you are in the uh, special situation space. Um, basically, during uh, during COVID, there was a lot of businesses that, that got into trouble for obvious reasons, um, but there was a lot of businesses that didn't get into trouble because they uh, were being basically propped up by the Australian tax office, being uh, propped up uh, by their banks, and I think the banks... Uh, may or may not have had pressure uh, put on them by the government um, not not to precipitate any action. And uh, likewise, uh, a lot of suppliers uh, refrained from uh, taking any uh, legal action. But all of that has changed a little bit. And I would just like to start off by um, I thought that it'd be a really uh, timely time, particularly as we're going into, uh, into the holiday season, uh, where a lot of uh, small business owners uh, close their businesses down over Christmas and uh, I've found traditionally that this is a time when people start uh, turning their mind to some of the nasty notices that uh, have turned up in the mail and so I have two experts uh, to assist us today to discuss what the nasty letters are and what to do about them. My first guest is uh, Angelina Kazari. How are you doing Angelina? I'm very well, recovering from a flu, so I'm going to apologise for my croaky voice. And uh, you've had the proper flu, as you were telling me a little bit. I have. Now. Yeah, but you didn't go into hospital, you survived. I, I did survive, and I'm still a Novid touchwood. Yeah. Still haven't had, had COVID. <laughs> when I had, uh, I had influenza A, but unfortunately I had it with a touch of the man flu, and I ended up in hospital, so, uh, so there was that. Now, listen, let me bring uh, on our other guest, and that is Louisa Sijabat. How are you going, Louisa? Going well, Nick. Hi, Angelina. Hi, Louisa. Um, now, I'm just going to uh, ask you both just to introduce yourselves by way of telling me maybe something interesting that has crossed your desk in the past week um, and uh, just, just to let our people know uh, what it is you do and who you do it for. And we'll start off with, um, with you, Angelina. Sure. Um, my name is Angelina Kazari. Um, I'm a partner at Holman Webb um, and I'm obviously a lawyer. I have been in the insolvency space for over 15 years um, and operating predominantly in the SME space. Um, I do a lot of work for insolvency practitioners, but also for directors and boards. I also do work for a number of non-bank lenders um, who also operate in the SME space. In terms of things that have come across my desk recently, I'm seeing a lot of defaults coming across my desk. I'm hearing a lot in the market in relation to the ATO enforcing debts and, and taking steps to, um, to recover funds from company directors and, and from companies generally. And um, like the slide that Nick presented indicate, there's been a spike in winding up applications recently after um, those court lists have been very quiet for the last few years. So um, definitely I'm seeing everyone ramping up um, on the recovery space. In addition, I uh, 
two of my partners at Home and Web um, are very active in the recovery space for cre credit managers and the like. Um, and um, they're also seeing an increase in work. Okay. Yeah. All right. And what about yourself, Louisa? What's uh, maybe uh, introduce yourself and also uh, maybe something interesting that's crossed your desk in the in the past week or so? For sure. So I'm Louisa Sidibat. I'm a registered liquidator and a registered bankruptcy trustee I'm from Merchants Advisory. Uh, I undertake work that is liquidations, restructuring, bankruptcy, advisory, anything in that space, so voluntary administrations, all sorts of industries. So in terms of what I'm seeing lately is actually a lot of inquiries in relation to restructurings and a lot of restructurings happening. It's tied in with what Angelina mentioned in relation to the ATO. We are seeing a lot of inquiries being driven by the fact that the ATO has issued them with notices or issued their company with notices, which I believe we'll chat a bit more about today because we are seeing a great increase around this and we're seeing a great increase around the use of restructurings to put proposals to the ATO to try and deal with this debt. Um, when you say restructurings, are you talking about the small business restructurings or, or just generally? Yes, primarily the small business okay. restructurings, although voluntary administration, as um, people may know, is a different form of restructuring as well. But the ones that we've seen the great uptick in is the small business restructurings. Yeah, I actually have uh, have another slide here, again, courtesy of Alaris, and thank you very much, Alaris, for uh, letting me use these slides. And you can see that when the uh, small business restructuring first came in, really nobody was using it much, but um, it's really kicked off. The other thing that's interesting about the small business restructuring is that uh, in the, the red column there is appointments of practitioners, but a lot of these restructurings do end up in a restructuring plan. So maybe we'll come back to that because uh, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that um, and you can tell us a little bit about what you are seeing in that regard. Um, let's start off with um, the, the, the first slide I had previously was the ATO. Uh, and and as we can see, you know, the ATO is absolutely uh, is, is kicked off big time. And we know just anecdotally, there's I think there's depending on who you're talking to, there's th somewhere between thirty and sixty billion dollars worth of uncontested uh, small business ATO debt, um, which is all very interesting uh, from a director's company director's point of view. But uh, how, how firstly, how do, the the ATO sends the director. A penalty, and it's either a penalty on the director personally, or it's a penalty on the, their company. So uh, maybe Louisa, just tell us what what are the what other notices that a director might receive? Yes. So the one you mentioned is the most common commonly used one at the moment, which is the director penalty notice, sometimes referred to as the DPN, and it's the notice that the ATO must give a director, and that can include former directors as well as newly appointed directors that permits the ATO to recover the company's unpaid amounts from that director personally. So this is quite significant because it opens up the director to personal liabilities, putting his or her um, assets at risk. And that includes personal assets, family, home, things in their name personally. Okay. Okay. So, so, uh, okay. So, so it's, um, so just go, just, just sort of delve a little bit into that personal, personal uh, aspect. Yes. So if a company um, has outstanding liabilities with the ATO, 
the ATO can issue these notices, which are called Director Penalty Notices or DPNs, making uh, uh, recovery against the director or directors who have received these notices personally liable for the company's unpaid amounts. So the types of liabilities that the ATO can uh, pursue um, directors for personally can include net GST, PAYG withholding, and superannuation guarantee charge because, um, as you may be aware, when that becomes overdue, it becomes the ATO's responsibility to collect it. Now, they, these, I'm assuming that the DPN, when, when the director receives this director's penalty notice or DPN, that's not going to be the first time they've heard from the ATO. It should not be. Um, their company should have been receiving notices in relation to uh, collection, unpaid amounts, and uh, uh, they should be well aware of those. It might be the first correspondence they receive in a personal capacity. However, they should be well and truly aware of what's happening in the company. So the tax debt itself shouldn't be a surprise to the director. Now, Angelina, um, most company directors, you know, they may have started off uh, sole trading or in a partnership. They've gone to see their accountant and their accountant said, look, uh, you know, you really need to protect yourself personally. So uh, incorporate, form a company, and that way you won't personally be liable uh, for debts. But uh, Louisa is telling us that when you get a DPN, all of a sudden uh, the the ATO can attack you personally. So do you just want to talk us through that a little bit? Sure. And this is... I think one of the problems, theoretically, there's a corporate bail which shouldn't get pierced, um, but there are a number of things that directors can be personally liable for, like like we've been discussing. Um, there's director penalty notices which sheet home a company's tax liabilities to a director, um, and there's limited ways to avoid those, and I assume that we'll be talking about those in due course, Nick, but um, obviously there's also personal guarantees that a lot of company directors provide in connection with operating their businesses and um, and those can bring those liabilities of the company back onto a director. And then the, uh, the other unfortunate piercing of uh, co the corporate veil that tends to make directors liable are insolvent trading claims in the event that the company goes into liquidation and only a liquidator or a creditor of the company in, in some circumstances can bring those insolvent trading claims, but they only arise when the company has already gone into liquidation. Um, in terms of the, the director penalty obligations, though, it's been historically a very good avenue for the ATO to recover debts, um, particularly when the company itself doesn't have the means to make the payments. It adds an additional layer of pressure onto directors to make sure that they're not allowing companies to continue to trade when they're not able to do so financially. So basically, it's a it's a stick that the ATO has to uh, to precipitate you to to to, to pay. Um, so what uh, obviously you, you know. Uh, you know, we've got a lawyer and a, an insolvency restructuring uh, accountant. What, what, I, I get one of these DPNs. What's the first thing I should do? I'll start with you, Louisa. Um, act quickly because the time is ticking. Um, they usually provide 21 days in which the recipient, so the director, 
must do something to deal with it. Otherwise, the DPN is then considered expired. So what are the things that can be done? Uh, that What are the options that the ATO gives for um, adequately or satisfactorily dealing with the DPN from the ATO's point of view? So what the options are depends significantly on whether certain lodgements done by the company were on time or within an, uh, a tolerable guideline provided by the ATO or whether they were later than that. So I'll be a little bit more specific. So for something like uh, PAYG withholding and net GST lodgements, um, the ATO says that if these were lodged, so obviously not paid, but lodged within three months of the due date, um, then that's, that, that's the tolerable period for that. And for super guarantee charge or anything related to super and superannuation, they must be lodged when the due date um, was. Now, if that's the case, and that's the type of outstanding debt that the company has, then in order to what they call remit or essentially fix the DPN problem that has been um, received by this director, the director can either put the company into a voluntary administration, small business restructuring, a creditor's voluntary liquidation, which is the type of liquidation that the company initiates, or pay it. Now, pay it is usually the least viable option. Otherwise, they typically don't let it get to this stage. However, they have four options. If you're outside those tolerable periods for lodgement um, and the company has a debt from those periods, then the only way the director can fix the DPN is to pay it. And usually by that stage, that may not be such a viable option to the director. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we've been getting a lot of inquiries uh, lately with uh, people who've had DPNs in in various uh, stages. And I'm not, you know, I'm obviously not across all of it, but I understand that, that there are different, some, sometimes the DPN, the tax debt's attaching personally, and sometimes it's not. We won't necessarily get too much into the weeds there, but but yeah, they're, they're having to either sell assets or raise capital or go into an administration or a combination of all of those. Angelina, if you, you've got a director and they ring you or they, you know, the accountant rings you and they're sitting with the director and they've got a DPN, uh, what's the first thing that, that you say to them that they should do? Well, uh, if they... Obviously, it depends on what na what the nature of the DPN is. So, if the the DPN is one that gives you twenty one days to to do something, those options definitely need to be explored. Um, if I can just sandwich what Louisa has said before a DPN is even issued, um, it's essential that the records of the company are kept up to date because what I've seen happen a lot is that DPNs are validly served on directors at addresses that they no longer reside at. And so keeping your ASIC records up to date when it comes to directors' home addresses is so vital in terms of the DPN process because what tends to happen, um, or what I've seen happen quite a lot over the last 15 years is that people get these director penalty notices in the mail at a former address and they don't find out about them until that 21 day period has expired. And that is a disaster. So before that DPN is issued, it's essential to make sure that all of your records are kept up to date with the ATO and with ASIC. The second thing that I wanna note before a DPN is even issued, as soon as a company is in 
difficulty in terms of meeting its tax liabilities, you need to do you, you need to be engaging with the ATO. And the third thing prior to a DPN being issued um, is to really be alive to making sure that tax lodgements are made on time, even if they can't be paid on time, that they're made on time, just to maximise the options that you have once a DPN has been issued so that that personal liability um, may be able to be removed by winding up the company, placing it into a small business restructuring or voluntary administration like Louisa has gone through. Um, that's particularly important in an economic situation where people cannot generally afford to pay a lump sum amount personally, um, where a, a company is not able to pay the ATO debt that it owes. Um, then following on from the issue of a DPN, the ATO needs to commence proceedings against the director in a court where the jurisdictional limit applies. So usually those claims are being brought in the, the district court um, in New South Wales and, and um, the county court in Victoria and, and courts around, around that level. And once the proceedings begin, there are a couple of defences that can be raised, but they are generally on a... a, a um, on a very general level, then they're not really defences that a lot of people have available to them. So you can't say, for example, that it's a defence to a DPN that the um, notice was issued to a former address that you no longer live at. If you haven't updated your, your details with ASIC, the right. notice is still validly served, whether or not you still lived at that address. There's no need for it to be personally served or anything like that. And it seems a, a lot of directors are really, you know, surprised by that because you would think with something that serious that there needs to be a level of verification that that, that notice has been received and there is none. So that's why I've, I've sort of put as the, the caveat to all of this is that you, it's on a director and it's a director's responsibility um, and for any accountants out there, it's something that you should be really advocating to your um, to the directors who you represent. It's so important to keep your details up to date because not knowing something can be an absolute disaster. Okay, now so so basically, we've got you know uh, make sure your lodgements are up to date. Make sure that your address is right because, you know, burying your head in the sand and hoping that, that, that uh, you know, you didn't see it, that's, that's, that's not going to work. Um, I, I do know that uh, often when people get into a bit of difficulty, they have a fight with their accountant, possibly because they haven't paid the accountant's bill and they're, uh, you know, they might be switching accountants. Uh, they haven't, you know, the old accountant got the notice and nothing's happened about it. The other thing is that uh, a lot of small business people, obviously, they're, they're flat out, particularly this time of year. And uh, they're just pushing these notices across their desk. Uh, and then, you know, maybe they're watching this and Christmas is over and they're going through their mail and there it is. And some of the, the, the clock's already ticking on this. Um, have I left anything out? Um, I, I'm just going to raise one other thing. It's not just directors that notices come to. It's also the company 
itself. Um, and when you're talking about pushing notices across your desk, in light of those slides that we've just seen, the precursor to the ATO or any trade creditor trying to wind up a company is issuing what's called a creditor's statutory demand for payment of debt. So if you see that form, you need to act immediately because if a 21-day period after service expires, a company itself is deemed to be insolvent. And that, that's a statutory presumption. So when people are going through their mail around this time of year and deciding what can wait and what can't wait, there's two really important documents that can never wait, a statutory demand or a uh, direct penalty notice because they both have very strict timeframes in which you have to do something. Okay, so we'll come to a stat demands just shortly. So just, just recapping. Don't ignore the notices. Make sure your details are up to date. Make sure your lodgements are up to date. And uh, as Louisa uh, said, there's you could fall into a bunch of different categories. Depending on what category you're in, the options are different. So you need to speak to a professional ASAP to uh, to make sure you know which category you fall into. Um, I don't want to spend a whole time talking about the ATO. So just very quickly, and I'll ask you this question both. I'll start with you, Louisa. Uh, as we know... People very often their lodgements aren't up to date. They didn't didn't open the mail when they should have opened the mail. Um, you know, it's the worst case scenario. They've got ten days to go. Uh, what what are their options? What, what what do you, what's your advice? Who who should they speak to and what should they do? And they've, they've suddenly had the wake up. Yeah, ring Angelina or myself ASAP is the first step. And yeah. then we will talk you through what's available to you in your situation at this moment. Now, if you haven't done your lodgements on time or they're still not done, look, it is what it is at this stage. We can't go back and change the past. But what we can do is say, okay, it's this sort of um, uh, size of debt. You have these resources, whether that's nil to some number, you know, halfway, 80% to whatever the debt amount is. Um, these are the options given the amount of the debt and the extent to which you might be able to pay it, whether some portion now or some portion into the future. And it will become a very personalised situation um, by that stage. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. So that's that's the ATO. Um, now, another uh, another source of pain is that, uh, that supplier that's run out of patience. And uh, I showed this other slide uh, earlier, winding up applications. Now, obviously, some of those ones in uh, yellow or orange, depending on how colorblind you are, and I'm not sure, is the ATO. But there's also a lot of other actions who uh, very often trade suppliers who... Uh, who, as I say, have run out of patience. Now, that, those stats there, Angelina, were winding up, uh, winding up applications. Um, so, do you just want to? And you mentioned uh, the the um, the statutory demand. So, do you want to just sort of just sort of join the dots on those two for us? Yeah, sure. So, when it comes to trade creditors, as opposed to the ATO. Um, my in my experience, they will usually commence proceedings if there's any dispute around what debt is owed. So often when it comes to trade creditors, this is not the first time that you're hearing about this liability because the statutory demand is frequently based on a judgment debt. Um, what happens with a statutory demand is if, you, if a company owes a debt um, that is over $5,000 now, I think is the statutory limit, um, then a creditor's statutory demand can be issued. That document 
is served on the registered office of the company. It can be sent by post. It does not need to be personally served. And what that form effectively says is that you owe, you being the company, owe the, uh, the creditor money and that if you do not pay that amount or compromise a claim to the satisfaction of the creditor within 21 days, then the company itself is deemed to be insolvent under the Corporations Act. Now, if there is a presumption of insolvency that arises after the expiry of a direct penalty notice, the creditor will ordinarily commence winding up proceedings in reliance on the expiry of that, that period and the presumption of insolvency. And so the creditor will commence proceedings in either the Supreme Court or the Federal Court or potentially sometimes the family court, although I don't know why anyone would really do that. Um, but in the Supreme Court or federal court and seek an order that the company be wound up. Um, once and that what, happens, what? Your, your options become a lot more limited because Cheryl Louisa will raise that you cannot appoint your own liquidator once a, once a winding up application has been filed. What, what, um, what, what, the statutory demand, what does it look like? Does it say statutory demand across the top? How do I know I've got it, one of these and not just a garden variety notice of demand? It will ordinarily say it's a Form 509H um, and a creditor's statutory demand for payment of debt. It will usually be accompanied by a covering letter saying we enclose by way of service a creditor's statutory demand for payment of debt. Um, and it will... It will have a certain format. It will have usually in bold writing or in a box, a notice saying very loudly that you must do something within 20, 21 days or there's a presumption of insolvency. It is a prescribed form under the Corporations Act and under the Corporations Regulations, but they can look a little bit different from time to time and, um, and substantial compliance with the the requirements under the Act will still be a valid statutory demand in most circumstances. I think they're a little um, bit like spiders, aren't they? Like, you know, you know the ones that are going to kill you. You, you, know, you don't know. You don't need to get your spider book out. Uh, as you said, they look different. And, um, yeah, okay. So, so Louisa, you, someone, uh, you know, you, you get uh, a director contacting you and say, listen, I've got this statutory demand notice. But to be honest with you, I was really busy last week and, uh, and, and, and the week before that, I actually got it, but I, I didn't open it up and now I've got seven days to go. Um, what, 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 how do you work out what to do next? Yeah, so this depends on who, is, who has issued that statutory demand, how much that debt is, is it disputed, is it not, and uh, is there any prospect of paying? So. Um, what I'm trying to say is the summary version is step one would be, can we sort or can you as the company director sort something with that creditor in the next seven days? Is that plausible or not? So then the path divides from there. If that's plausible, I highly recommend you go sort that ASAP. That could involve a lawyer. It could involve your accountant. It could involve a broker doing some sort of refinance to pay them out or something like that. Now, the other branch or the other path is I cannot sort that out within that time. They're not likely to accept any payment plan. I don't have funds. What happens next? So it, that would then proceed to expire. That statutory demand would expire. 
um, and it will be um, unresolved, as in no payment or no satisfactory arrangement has been entered into. What happens from then? Uh, do you want me to keep going, or are we? Well, well I've just well, you've just yeah, raised. We'll go, we'll go to that point, to that intersection. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, the, the first thing is there was a question I meant to ask before, and you, and you mentioned uh, payment yeah. arrangements, and so that, that I sort of just call back to the ATO there. Once yeah. you once the ATOs commenced action, my experience these days is that they're no longer interested in payment arrangements. Is that a, is that a fair call? Um, sometimes I think if you're going to put a payment arrangement to the ATO and proceedings have been commenced and recovery actions are underway, you're going to need to have around fifty percent of the amount due ready for a lump sum payment right. for the ATO to even start looking at a payment plan. Um, or you're going to have to have, say, a property that is up for sale or has been sold with a contract due to be due to settle in a short period of time. You're going to have to have an unconditional letter of offer from a, a financier to provide a, a significant portion of that debt. But you're not going to be able to get a you know ten thousand dollar a fortnight payment plan put into place. You're going to have to do have have some material payment made in a very, very short period of time in order for the ATO to even look at a payment plan. Okay. Um, That's been my experience as well. It matches that quite precisely. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we, we, you know, I get people come to me and they say, look, I need $2 million to pay the ATO. And, and that might shock a lot of people, but there's a lot of those big numbers going around. And I do the, the maths and, uh, you know, we, we, we lend against accounts receivable. We lend against equipment. We lend against uh, pro property equity. We, we do all the maths and we go, you know, we can actually only lend you a million dollars uh, based on the security that's available. And, and I suggest that through, you know, they seek professional advice, of course. But instead of uh, writing a cheque for the ATO for the whole amount, which, well, firstly, we can't get to that number. Um, but what they should do is throw, uh, throw a large number at it, you know, 50%, 40%, whatever they think they can do, um, and, and tackle it that way. So then getting back to the... Um, getting back to... The, the, the trade suppliers. So you've, you've sort of outlined some conditions there where the ATO may or may not, having commenced proceedings, be negotiable. Uh, with trade suppliers, when there's a stat demand, uh, do you, in your experience, are they open to negotiation or once they've gone that far, it's, you know, they just they just want to see it through? Um, in, in my experience, it, it can go either way and it depends who the trade creditor is, what your relationship with them is like, um, including any ongoing relationship. And um, then those trade creditors will, you know, again, like the ATO, um, in, in all likelihood only be willing to negotiate on pretty strict terms um, that involves, you know, it, a very short-term arrangement. What I suggest is that before you get to that point, um, I might I might pick up from there if that's all right. That's Nick. all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I yeah, don't know exactly what Angelina had in mind to express on that one, yeah. um, but uh, what uh, my experience matches what she was saying in relation to it could go either way with trade suppliers where yep. um, usually by the time it's gotten to a statutory demand, 
it's a bit hard to come back from, but not impossible. And the reason I say that is most trade suppliers in their credit department will try and keep an ongoing customer as long as they're viable and as long as it makes sense for them to do so, depending on whatever their internal credit policies might be. They obviously need to get paid. That's part of the business model. And they, a lot of them do really try and work with their customers because that's how they came to be owed money in the first place, that they are customers. And they're typically our account managers trying to keep the relationship going. However, what happens is um, by that point, sometimes the need to enforce the credit policies might take over for business reasons and the um, and the payment requirements might become a bit more stringent as to uh, as compared with what they were in the past. So you can come back from it. It is hard. It is uphill, which is not a surprise to any directors at that point. Um, uh, but it is with difficulty. And can I ask you um, often, what, just on this technical point, but it's important for company directors and, and their advisors to understand. Uh, I, I, sometimes we get asked, you know, we, we, someone comes to us and say, look, we've got a statutory demand um, and it's for, you know, $200,000. And they say, can you pay that so it'll go away? And what we say is, well, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly make those funds available, but you need to have the whole because it, once it's once it's gone to court you need to have the whole thing dismissed because otherwise even if we pay you know the person who's suing you someone else can step in so you just want to sort of in layman's terms just briefly outline yeah yep. totally so we've talked about the statutory demand look out for it look out for the you know big heading that says statutory demand so if that expires um so that has the 28 uh, 21 day period if that expires um, the person who or organisation or company that issued that statutory demand has the right to file what's called a winding up application in court. Winding up is uh, a word that or phrase that means exactly the same as liquidation. So what that means is if a statutory demand expires, um, that uh, creditor has the right to apply to the court for the liquidation of the company that hasn't paid. So that is obviously very significant to that company that hasn't paid. Um, the winding up application can be filed as soon as practical after. It could be a day or two or three, depending how quickly that lawyer can um, prepare the documents or what the credit uh, or what the creditor's instructions are to their lawyers. Or they might sit on it for a while. So it depends at that point. So once. Um, you do have the statutory demand and it's expired. It could be at any point in the future over the next few months that a winding up application, um, apologies, that's my eco lights, um, right. that a winding up application or liquidation application can be filed by that creditor. And then once that has been filed, the court allocates a hearing date to that um, hearing for the liquidation. And that's that hearing date that we've um, been talking about um, indirectly previously. Okay. You're back with us, Angelina? I am. My whole computer just died. That's okay. All right. No problem. So the, what we no, were I'm just... I'm on my phone now. Bit, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, what we were just talking about was uh, I mentioned that sometimes I get asked uh, to provide finance to pay out a, a statutory demand or a wind-up notice, actually, or more specifically, a wind-up notice. Um, and I say to people, and I'm, you know, is, uh, you know, we can pay that wind-up notice out, but it's no good paying it out until the matter's been dismissed. 
Um, and Louisa was just talking us through that. And I just wonder if you got a, a lawyer's perspective on that. Because obviously yeah, other creditors um, can jump in and step in, even if I pay out creditor X. So, yeah, Angelina, so you, if you want to jump in from um, the filing of the winding up application to its dismissal, because that's the portion sure. we haven't covered. So um, when a winding up application is filed and you engage a, a lawyer, you usually have the first return date a couple of weeks after the filing of the application itself. Um, as a lawyer, I will usually put on an appearance and set out any um, grounds of defence to that statutory demand. The grounds are relatively limited. One of the grounds is that the company is, in fact, solvent. Um, another is that um, that you're asking the court to exercise its discretion not to make the winding up orders. That notice, once the winding up, <clears throat> once the winding up application is filed, the um, notification of that filing is a matter of public record and a creditor will have to put notice of that application onto the insolvency notices website. So everyone becomes aware that this application has been filed. I know a number of creditors that monitor those lists and there are a number of, a number of um companies that send out daily alerts about winding up applications that have been filed. So if you have another creditor who you owe money to, they might see your name on that list and then file what's called a notice of appearance. They'll be in that proceeding as a supporting creditor. So even if you pay out the person who's filed the winding up application, that supporting creditor can then seek orders to basically step into the shoes of the creditor who filed the application and rely on that presumption of insolvency from the failure to comply with the statutory demand. Um, so basically that they step into the shoes of the, the creditor if, if the proceedings are dismissed um, and that the company is still deemed to be insolvent because of the expiry of the demand, even though they didn't issue it themselves. So if someone like Nick comes in and pays out the creditor who filed the winding up application and the day that you are at court seeking a dismissal order, someone rocks up with a notice of appearance in their hand and seeks leave to file that in court and seek orders for substitution, um, there's little that can be done to stop that process happening, um, which is which is why someone like Nick will have, you know, terms around any finance that's given to get rid of a winding up application. So, so really, a part of uh, yeah, so part of the response to receiving a wind up application, yeah, I mean, it's simply not. Well, it depends on your financial situation, of course, and so you know you've got to go to the experts to get the advice. Um, but it's also to be aware of who else might substitute. I mean, just just to sort of. You know, because it's it's like a tag team. So uh, you know, Killer Kowalski may have been paid off, <laughs> if that means anything to you. Um, but uh, you know, Hulk Hogan might just be standing there, just on the tag. You know, thank you very much. Well, now, uh, now, in I'm terms in. of in terms of a war story, I at one point, and it may still be the case, I held the record for the most number of adjournments in the of a winding up application in the Supreme Court of Victoria, because. Every time my client paid out a creditor, a new one would pop up. And 
it got to, I think, 13 adjournments um, because new creditors would pop up every time. And it's a very, you know, it, it's, it's a difficult thing to deal with when you have those creditors that are lining up behind and it can be more than one creditor. Um, I had another matter recently where there were, you know, seven or eight supporting creditors sitting behind um, the petitioning creditor. And so you need to be alive to the attitude of your other creditors as well. Yeah, I mean, I had, I had, one, I had one this time last year. I, I got into a big fight with the client's solicitor uh, and the client's solicitor was not an insolvency expert. Uh, they got most indignant uh, when I suggested to them that the, law, the client needs to go and see a lawyer who knows what they're doing um, in, in this, because this lawyer was saying, oh, listen, just pay it out. And I said, okay, buddy, <laughs> what's going to happen when I've, when I've, you know, depleted this guy's uh, borrowing capacity to pay out that creditor, and then they get to court and another creditor pops up and, the, you know, this list is, oh, well, that's just the risk we'll have to take. And uh, it was like, well, not with my money, you know, um, it was... You know, it was very sloppy advice, if you ask me. I, I, and I don't know any lender where that would be acceptable risk. No, no. It doesn't matter no. how much interest you're, you're proposing no, to charge. That, no, that's an no, unacceptable no, level of risk. No, no, no. It's like that arcade game where you whack a crocodile and another one right. pops up. And until you've done all yeah. of them, um, you're still alive in this game. Um, yeah. So you do have to deal with um, all of them or at least have an understanding or plan for the whole situation altogether. Okay, listen, we are, we're running out of time and uh, I really wanted to get to, uh, to my next one, uh, which is the, the notice from the bank. Um, now, I had an advisor call me the other day and he said, uh, my client's got a 100-day letter from the bank. Now, I've not really heard it called a 100-day letter before, but it was a, a letter from a major bank to the, to the customer um, saying that uh, we've reviewed your facilities and they've, uh, they're, they're none of them being renewed. And there was an invoice finance facility and some equipment finance and I think a, you know, a business term loan. And uh, as I say, we can see that the banks are all ramping up their activity. I mean, it sort of goes up and down, up and down there. Um, but if you were to sort of put a, a trend line through it, it's definitely trending up. Um, how, does, uh, how does your advice change uh, for someone who has received a letter from the bank saying, uh, you know, you've got until the end of February to refinance all your facilities. Um, oh. Louisa. Uh, sorry. Oh, Angelina, Angelina. I was going to say there's so many options out there beyond the major banks. And despite what I think um, is the, the myth that, you know, any non-bank lender is completely un like is uncommercial or you know lends on on riskier terms. It's not necessarily true when you, especially when you're refining refinancing out of a major bank with no or limited defaults. Um, you have so many options available to you. If you get that letter, engage early with a really good broker. Yep. Uh, now I'll have I've got a very specific scenario. I've got to have had a few of these lately, um, so I'll give you one example, Louisa. Uh, I had one referred to me by a good finance broker, and uh, one of the major accounting. Well, firstly, the firstly the client had been transferred to bad bank, and we'll just talk about that in a moment. And secondly, um, they were they were being they were being monitored by one of the major accounting firms. Um, so, you know. 
and I'm pretty certain that that major accounting firm, uh, you know, just like Sylvester having little sort of baked chicken uh, thought bubbles when he looks at Tweety Bird, I'm pretty sure that was going on with this major insolvency firm. Um, do you want to sort of talk us through, firstly, what, what happens there when a client is transitioned, you know, from their friendly banker out at Chatswood Branch uh, into town or into Bad Bank, as we call it? Um, uh, yeah, do, well, firstly, just, just talk us through that and what, as an insider, I mean, you're an insolvency person, as an insider, what's really going on when that file is being monitored by one of those big accounting insolvency divisions? Yes. Okay. So lots happening there. So bad bank is an informal term that um, people like us in the industry use to describe a situation where... Um, uh, or to describe the department that exists in um, pretty much every bank and financial institution, it definitely exists in all of the major ones, um, for bankers who are specifically trained for, um, well, they refer to the for things, but um, special situations might be um, how they most nicely call it. Essentially, when there's either some sort of um, default or something that goes outside normal operating scope of the um, account or facility, or that um, they are trying to transition the customer on to some other um, to some other financial institution. So they are specialist bankers. They're usually centralised within the bank, and their job is to work out what to do with this customer and um, how to exit them from the bank. So the majority of the time. Uh, the bank typically prefers the customer to exit by refinance and by agreement and consent and um, uh, that both parties agree. Now, it, sometimes the customer might be so far in default that they are not paying anything on any facility, say in a worst case scenario. Um, the workout banker or, or the bad bank banker has to then work out what do we do to try and recover the bank's money from this situation um, and they will go about that in a variety of ways. Um, one of the things that you mentioned there is that monitoring by um, a, a, an accounting firm. They might be a major accounting firm. They might be a mid-tier accounting firm. Um, this is certainly not a cheap exercise, typically. Um, and the company will need to be providing financial information to this accounting firm, who will then typically assess um, and provide their recommendations or report to the bank on an ongoing basis how um, what the bank should do. Should the bank appoint a receiver and take control of this business? Should the bank try and um, let the customer work out their payment plan? Should the bank try and let the customer refinance or whatever it is? Um, unfortunately, from the customer's point of view, um, it's typically in most banking agreements that the um, bank can charge the customer's account for the accounting firm's fees and the choice of accounting firm, the fees, the fee budget is usually within the bank's decision. So it usually already, it usually puts more stress on an already stressed customer. And uh, Angelina, what, uh, what what sort of advice do you, do you give someone? Do you do you pick up the phone to the bank? What, uh, uh, let, let's say they've, you know, they've been given 60 days, uh, they've got uh, the insolvency firm hovering, um, you know, what, what how, how do you sort of uh, triage the situation? Yeah, look, it, like most things, I am a big advocate for engaging early. Um, so definitely engaging early with the bank, but more importantly is to engage early with 
alternative financiers. And that can that can really be the deal breaker when it comes to having a, a good outcome. So for example, a a, a letter of offer coming from a um, from a, a reputable incoming replacement lender will usually be enough to buy a little bit more time to um, to get everything in order without the uh, large accounting firms being appointed to undertake investigations. And unfortunately, like Louisa has said, the, the costs of doing that can sometimes be the difference between being able to refinance and being um, being stuck and having a shortfall in what you're able to obtain to pay out the larger bank. So it, it is really important in that respect to engage early, to try and put off any formal appointment or informal appointment um, of an insolvency practitioner to do either an IA, or, sorry, an, an investigate, investigative accounting report or um, do take any precursor steps to their appointment as a receiver. Um, and and just, just by way of wrapping up, because uh, I think this is a record length uh, lunch money already, um, what, uh, what, what about uh, bank haircuts? Have you had, have you had experience with those? Just to give you an example again, you know, we certainly have. We, 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 you know, we bundle together the, the assets and we go, okay, well, we can afford, well, based on the security, we can lend X dollars. Uh, of course, we don't want to give the bank all the money because we want to make sure that uh, the customer has some working capital moving forward. So I had one scenario, for example, where we worked out we could raise $2 million. Uh, we, we estimated, obviously, working with someone like Louisa, that they needed half a million dollars worth of working capital. So we go, right, we can raise $2 million. Half a million has to go into working capital. That means the bank can have $1.5 million. Now, the bank was owed $3 million in this case. And so we, you know, we showed the bank our calculations, uh, and we said to the bank, "Look, uh, fifty cents in the dollar." You know, I mean, it's you got to be very humble because the, the banks sort of view it as a bit of an insult. But that uh, was the reality of the situation, and and in this particular instance, uh, it worked. Depending on who I speak to, people say that the banks are more open to those sorts of conversations at the moment. Other people say no. What what's your experience, Louise? Um, I think I'm not aware of what the trend is at the moment, but I've seen it on a case by case basis um, where in your case, you understand what's happening with the company and have been able to communicate it in a way that the bank understands as well. And that's actually a very important part of this process because banks don't like taking haircuts um, unless there's a really good reason. And it's about demonstrating to the bank why their interests are being properly considered as best as possible and that they are being looked after and explaining why in language the bank understands and numbers the bank understands that this is the best possible outcome for them and there is no best, better outcome and hence this is why it's recommended. What about yourself, I, I would say, I would say there's two really crucial things before going into any negotiation, but particularly this negotiation, like Nick and Louisa have just pointed out. Um, going prepared, you need to have the numbers. You need to have a, a, you need to be giving the banks or any creditor really a basis upon which to accept what you're saying is, is true. 
The second key principle when it comes to negotiating with banks and with any creditor, again, is to engage early. The more antagonism that arises due to a lapse of time, the less likely that a commercial outcome can be reached because we are all human and it tends to be that emotions will get in the way. So engaging early and honestly and openly to the to the extent that it's necessary or or desirable um is a key in my experience of getting a good outcome with any commercial creditor the lo- like i said the longer you leave it the more anger underlies any negotiation so um it, so keeping those doors open even if you don't have great news for for banks, I think is a real key to getting a good outcome on a on a negotiated basis. But certainly, Nick, I've I've seen um, discounts be given, and quite significant ones sometimes, because banks are commercial enterprises and they understand commercial risk. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, look again. I uh, it, it all comes down to um, a if they if they think it's a better outcome financially, you know, and also timely outcomes as well. I mean, there's been scenarios where we've said to the bank, "Look, we we'll get your result. It'll be by the end of next month. Uh, here's what the result will be," and um, you know, it's it's obviously it's obviously less than ideal, but. You know, particularly, I found that it's particularly where there's regional scenarios. It seems to work better. I've had a, I've had a few, I guess, in the last sort of twelve to eighteen months where there's been a regional scenario. It means, I think, I think that sort of plays a little bit more on the bank's calculations. Um, look, I'm going to say thank you very much uh, to you both. So thank you for joining me and uh, for uh, for giving us. Uh, the um, I guess the what do you call it the the, the guide for the non professional I will say I always say to people I'm not an advisor I'm just a financier so yes uh, we have solutions if uh, you've got wind up notices ATO pressure or pressure from the bank uh, but I only have one piece of advice that I'm happy for you to sue me on and uh, and that that advice is to seek professional advice um, so so I would say I would say that I am going to uh, I'm going to wrap up. Uh, with a bit of a Christmas message, uh, I would like to say uh, to those who celebrate uh, Christmas, have a happy Christmas. Uh, if you don't celebrate Christmas, well, I wish you all the best for this festive season. Uh, have a, a safe and a happy holiday with your loved ones. Um, now, we have got uh, here at Lunch Money, we have created a little bit of content for you to dip into uh, over the over the summer period. We've got, we had a great interview with the author uh, of this book, Duncan Maven, um, the, the Pyramid uh, of Lies, Lex Greensill and the Billion Dollar Scandal. And uh, I think, A, you'd really enjoy reading this book, but uh, I'm sure that you'll also enjoy Duncan Maven's uh, interview. You could uh, maybe uh, work on your uh, communication, personal leadership and personal persuasion and influence skills 
by uh, dipping into our recent uh, lunch money with uh, Arabella McPherson. That was uh, that was absolutely fantastic, and uh, you will definitely get some uh, some benefit uh, there personally if you're a professional that needs to sell, lead, uh, persuade. Uh, I 100% recommend that uh, you take a look at at that podcast or have a listen to that podcast. And uh, if you're a director or a, a commercial finance broker, we've given you lots of uh, lots of meaty stuff to get into today uh, with uh, with Angelina and uh, and uh, and Louisa. So once again, uh, Louisa and Angelina, thank you very very much. Thanks for having us, Nick. Thank you very much. No worries. Okay, cue the 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 outro.